Okay, it's good to be back here with you tonight. I've been coming just on the nights lately and not coming and doing um, double duty, as they would say, by doing a morning and a night. So it's good, though, always to be with you at night. And I was, since there's so few of you, I will um, share one of my secrets with you. Those who know me well know this secret, so I'm not sharing too much, and that is... uh, I'm not a teacher who speeds through the scriptures. I finished Revelation at Vista. Granted, I don't speak at Vista every Sunday, usually once or twice a month. And it, I looked at my notes, and I started the series in January of 2015, and I was able to finish it in May of 2018. Zion, who, uh, if you're not familiar with, is the Korean Assembly that meets in downtown LA in Koreatown, and they are um, consecutive Bible teachers and they're going through the book, and when you come as a visitor, they assign you a portion. And they always challenge me, because they often give me a whole chapter. And it's really hard for me when you give me a whole chapter. And one time I went, they gave me three chapters in Genesis, and that was extremely challenging to me to do three chapters, and plus you usually have someone translating Korean, and so it usually slows it down even a little bit more. So I'm, as you can see, we're gonna cover 11 verses and and here in John 13, and we broke it into two sessions because I can't cover 13 verses in one session, which is unfortunately just how my mind works. So I promised you and gave you a tease that we would come back and finish up the rest of the passage, and that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to continue with the upper room teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to start with verse 1 of chapter 13, just to refresh our memories where we left off. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them, Unto the end, and supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he was come from God and went to God, he rises from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he had poured forth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them from the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore said he, You are not all clean. And we'll stop there and start looking at, at this passage. Once again, the teaching of the upper room ministry is on holiness. And so the Lord, in the middle of teaching them holiness and the importance of a servant-like attitude, 
stops and gives them a second object lesson. And what we want to look at is a second object lesson, the object lesson that particularly deals with his interaction with Peter. We have three characters here in this passage that we're dealing with, and it's John, it's Peter, and it's Judas. But tonight, we're going to look particularly at Peter and his, what he's doing. There are things that defile us. Sometimes it's sinful attitudes. Sometimes it's sinful acts. Sometimes it's things that come from outside. Sometimes it's things that come from inside. And if we're going to be holy, we need to be constantly cleansed. So the Lord's going to, in a way, give a double parable. He's going to give a, a parable on servanthood, and he's going to give a parable on cleansing in the middle of giving a, a parable on servanthood. Let's look at verse 8, and we'll jump down there, and then we'll come back. It says, Peter said unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Now, here's his Lord and Master. Here's the one he's declared to be the Son of God, and he's down on his hands and knees, and he's washing the disciples' feet. And he comes to Peter, and Peter, as we know, is a bold one. Peter's the one who's more than willing to rebuke the Lord when he feels it necessary. <laughs> and he says, wait. Wait. You're never going to wash my feet. It just isn't happening. And then notice the Lord's reaction. Jesus answered and said, if, thou, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. And so first we come to one that the Lord knows is his own. And he's going to deal with one part of the washing. And we're going to look at two distinct parts of washing today that he brings out in this passage. But the first washing we're going to think about, and then we're going to leave it and come back to it, is the washing of fellowship and communion, and I would even suggest service. That the things that defile us, unconfessed sin, unconfessed attitudes, an unwillingness to submit ourselves to the scriptures, defile us and prevent us from serving, present, prevent us from having communion, and prevent us from having fellowship. And so the Lord, knowing Peter's his, says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And so that's the first lesson, is that there's a necessity to be continually washed, to have our feet washed, but he doesn't stop there. Because Peter's still confused. Look at verse 9. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Well, well, you know, if that's good, Peter's always an all-in type of person. Well, if it's good if you wash my feet, let's, let's go all the way here. And so Peter doesn't get the lesson quite yet. He's sort of dull, like some of us and me particularly. And so Jesus is going to teach him a lesson. And the lesson Jesus teaches here is what I want to focus on tonight mainly. And we want to understand what he's talking about. And he says this, and Jesus said unto him, He that is washed needeth not save, wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and you are clean, but not all. Verse 10. And one of the problems that we have, if we just give this a brief reading, is that the King James isn't exactly the best translation in the whole world because the Lord uses two different Greek words and the authorized translators decided they would translate them as a single word. 
He uses one word which means to bathe or wash all over. And he uses another word which means like to wash your hands or to wash your feet, a simple act of cleansing. And the problem is, is that if you just read it and you don't understand what he's talking about, then it presents problems. So here, let's look at this from that point of view. He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet. And the first wash that he uses in that, in that passage is, a, is a, the Greek word for bathe. The Greek word for bathe. And he's talking about the custom of the time that if you were invited to a dinner, you would bathe at home and then you would go to the dinner, and then a servant would wash your feet. So once you had bathed at home, there was no need to bathe again when you got to the dinner. But there was a need to wash your feet. So a once-for-all bathing, he's telling Peter that that has already taken place in his life. Notice what it says. He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but he is clean every whit. You are clean, but not all. There was one who had never been bathed all over, and that was Judas. And the rest of them had been bathed all over, and there was no need to repeat the bathing all over. And so Judas had never been bathed all over. But the rest of the disciples had. And so what he's telling them is that the bathing all over makes a disciple completely clean. And once you're completely clean, the only thing you need to do is wash your hands and your feet. Now, I would take from that what he's teaching is that bathing all over is a spiritual cleansing because you have the rest of the disciples who had been spiritually cleansed and you have Judas Iscariot who hasn't been spiritually cleansed. The bathing all over is initial because he tells them once you've been spiritually cleansed, there's no reason to have a total spiritual cleansing again. And the bathing all over is a once for all cleansing. Now the question then becomes, is this something that's taught in the scriptures? And I think it is. And I think it's what you need to understand as I think, and I love the fact that David's putting the tabernacle together, because I think our failure to understand the tabernacle causes us to miss what the New Testament is often teaching us. So let's think about this. There's two vessels at the entrance of the tabernacle. One was the brazen altar, and right behind that was what we call what we would call the labor of water. There's a large labor of water. Another topic for another time, but we see these same instruments and the same things when we come to Revelation. The first one was a necessity to be cleansed by blood. And we see this in the act of the priest. The priest had to be anointed by blood for cleansing. But in their initial rite of entering into the priesthood, they also had to be bathed all over. 
Once they were bathed, once they were, were, were initiated with the blood, and once they were bathed all over, we don't read the bathing process being repeated for them. It was a ceremonial. It was ceremonial, but the picture pointed to a truth that I think we find in the New Testament. And that's what we want to look at tonight. So the shadow of good things to come, which we know the tabernacle speaks of, is it in fact something that the New Testament then shows us where those were a type of something that's real in the New Testament. We see it again and again. Let's look at that. I believe the answer is yes. And I think the Lord is using literal water to teach a spiritual lesson to his disciples. For instance, let's look at 1 John 1, 7. I think a very familiar passage to us. I think most people could quote it. In fact, some people about now maybe even be asking questions of me. Like, I understand the cleansing by blood. What is he talking about, the cleansing by water? But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ. His son cleanses us from all sins. I think most people understand that they've been cleansed by the blood. But then, if we turn to Ephesians 5, which is a fairly famous passage on marriage, I think it's important that we don't miss what he's teaching in Ephesians 5. In verse 25. Husbands, love your wife, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. So that's more the washing on your hands and feet rather than an overall washing. But is there, in fact, two cleansings? Is there, at the initial, like with the priest, is the believer undergo two different cleansings? Why is the cleansing by blood not enough? And we're going to look at that. And so first we've got to look at what does the cleansing by blood do. Then we're going to look at what the cleansing by water does. And then we're going to look at the differences between the two, if you would. The cleansing by blood. Turn to Hebrews 9 with me, if you would. Hebrews 9 and verse 13. It says this, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who had been defiled sanctify unto the cleanliness of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish unto God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Bud cleanses the conscience. Dead works. What are dead works? Dead works, that, that works which leads to death and alienate us from God. And those dead works make us unfit. They have fellowship with God. 
We can't possibly have fellowship with the Holy God. We sang a number of songs on the rake and the bread this morning that talked about with hearts and conscience now set free. There's one song that says with hearts and conscience now set free, it is our joy to worship thee. We must have the guilt of our conscience dealt with in order for us to worship God, in order for us to be cleansed of the guilt and the sin that comes about by the cleansing by the blood. All right. One of the promises we have that we cling to, that we know our guilt's been dealt with, is what? That we know that our sins are remembered no more forever. And that's pictured in the blood. That without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That we have remissions of sins. We've been cleansed from our sins because of the blood of Christ. So the question then, I'm sure some of you might have, if our conscience has been cleared of guilt, and we have peace with God, and we access into his presence, something that the Old Testament offerings could only do be a temporary fix for, why do we need any more cleansing? Because it's effective. I want to tell you, the blood of Christ is effective in cleansing our sins. All right, let's look at Titus 3, if you would. Paul is writing to Titus, and he's writing to him, and I think he's giving Titus advice, and I think the advice he gives Titus casts light on the very issue we're dealing with of this double cleansing. Let's look at verse 12. I'm sorry. I said Titus 3, you probably meant Titus 2. Titus 3, let's look at verse 3. For we ourselves were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, leaving in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness of God, our, the love of God and our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And get this, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. God, Paul's saying, in his loving kindness and his goodness, saved us by the washing of regeneration. And so now we come to the fact that the new birth then gives us a renewal of mind. And both are performed by the Holy Spirit. We're washed. I believe personally that when the Lord is talking to Nicodemus and he says one must be born again from above, because that's what born again means, that you must be born of water and the blood. And I believe he's speaking of this double washing because I think from the new covenant and from the Old Testament priests that that's what Nicodemus would have understood him to mean. Now let's go on. Is that the only place? 
Again, the washing here is bathing all over. It's a washing of regeneration. So the blood of Christ purges our conscience and our guilt and brings us peace with God. But the great news of the New Testament is is that God just isn't concerned about forgiving our sins. He's concerned about the life we live for him now. He does not leave us powerless then. He's not just interested in the forgiveness of sins. And so not only, and we often say this, and and I've been guilty of some people thinking this is my mantra, but it's not. But the Bible teaches that we're saved from the penalty of sin. And the blood saves us from the penalty of sin. The washing of regeneration, however, saves us from the power of sin. And what the Bible teaches is that ultimately we're going to be saved from the presence of sin. And we'll no longer have to deal with sin. The Holy Spirit's washing brings all those evil attitudes, as Paul talks about here, for we ourselves were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived. The Cretes who Titus was dealing with were guilty of all these, and Paul saying, and worse, and Paul saying, we were just as guilty before the Holy Spirit washed us, before the Holy Spirit dealt with us. And all that evil that exists that we need to change and be different is then dealt with by the Holy Spirit. I quoted this verse this morning. 2 Peter 1, one of my favorite verses. That's what does it say? It says that we've been made a partaker of the divine nature. God has given us the power to overcome sin because he has caused us to be born again. The regeneration that we have a new life to live. We can't cover it tonight. We just simply don't have time. But the idea is that if you turn to Romans 6, Paul says what? That you've been dead to sins, that you've been made alive to Christ, that you've been raised. It's the same idea. We could turn to, let's turn to Colossians 2 and look at it, because I think we have the same exact idea in Colossians 2. The problem with Colossians 2 is that we get confused about what Paul's talking about. And too many people don't understand, and so then they make it say something that I don't believe it says. Colossians 2 and verse 11, In whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the putting of the body of sins and flesh without flesh by the circumcision of Christ. If you want to do a study, do a study of things made without hands. Things made without hands. And so Paul's saying there's things made without hands. If you, if you read Daniel, the stone that comes and crushes a figure is a, is, a, is a stone that isn't cut by human hands. And when you read that, you know that there's spiritual power and there's a spiritual emphasis on there. And there, he's talking about the cutting away of the body of the flesh, but not made by hands. He's talking about something spiritual. Now, the problem is people read the next verse and they miss that he's still talking about something spiritual. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also you're risen with him to the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. He's talking about the washing of baptism, the regeneration, that we were buried with Christ. And when we came, we came to new life. And that's that, that, that regeneration. Regeneration means being brought back to life. 
We're buried with Christ. And it's a picture of a washing, it's a picture of baptism. And we're raised with Christ, regenerated to newness of life. Because he doesn't leave us in our sins. He doesn't leave us just guilt-free. He gives us power to overcome our sins. And the wonderful thing is that water baptism is a wonderful picture of that if we understand the spiritual significance that's taking place. And it's important that we understand that spiritual significance. The Lord says we're completely clean. Do we believe it? Do we believe it? The process of being made holy, all the work of that has been done for us. The blood clears our conscience, and the washing of regeneration prepares us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to live holy lives. The Lord warned the Pharisees, though, that ceremonial washing is best only a token and cannot itself cleanse away spiritual defilement. Baptism won't clear it away. It's a washing of the regeneration of the word of God. Now, let's look at John 1, and we're going to look at John making a couple points here. There are two passages, both concerning the baptism of the Lord Jesus. So we read one of them in John 1 and 29. And John says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. When, when you mention the Lamb, the Lamb always refers to the shed blood. The Lamb refers to the shed blood. But you don't have to turn there, but I'll read you Mark 1 and 8, because he also said, John at the same time said this, I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And again, it's this idea of bathing, and he's comparing that I've baptized you physically with real water, but there's coming one who's going to baptize you, regenerate you, wash you, with the Holy Spirit. And so we have a double cleansing of sin. First, the blood to cleanse us of our conscience and from the guilt of sin. And second, the cleansing by water, which is a metaphor of the power of the Holy Spirit, who cleanses us from the defilement and sins and gives us a new life to make us holy. I don't think Peter understood that all on this night. In fact, I'm sure he didn't. But later, when he's preaching, he has this to say in Acts 15. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. In fact, turn to... Turn to 1 Peter, and I think we see it again in 1 Peter. First Peter 22. 1 Peter 1 and 22, sorry, 1 Peter, first chapter, 22nd verse. 
just seeing if you're awake. Christy was. She looked at me like with this crooked eye going, what in the world? I know First Peter doesn't have 22 chapters. What are you talking about? 1 Peter 1.22 says that seeing you have purified or washed or bathed, and that's the word to bathe, the idea of bathing, your souls in obeying the truth of the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brother, and see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And Peter understands the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit, and he says that has happened to you when you obeyed the truth. But Peter also understands, and I think he learned the lesson, that a once-for-all bathing isn't enough, that there has to be the continued washing. And so in 1 Peter 2, he goes on then and says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice, all guile, and hypocrisies, and envies, and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. There's a once-for-all bathing, but there has to be a continual washing of the hands and feet as we're defiled by sin. And we see this again pictured in the, ta in the tabernacle that the priest had to clean their hands and their feet on a regular basis. Turn over to 2 Corinthians 7. Paul teaches this idea of continual washing. So we have two washings. We have a once for all bathing where he says, if you're not, you're not one of mine if you're not bathed all over. But you have no fellowship with me if you're not washed, cleansed on a regular basis too. And Paul, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And how do we do that? We put away, as, as Peter talked about, those things which we know are sin. We've been given power over that. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins. We recognize them as sin and we stop doing them and we have power to stop doing them because of the Holy Spirit. And it's so unfortunate to watch someone who knows and recognizes sin to continue in sin. And not only is their fellowship broken with the Lord, their fellowship is soon broken with any Christians and any other believers that would want to have fellowship with them. It's impossible to carry on. So how do we cleanse ourselves on a regular basis? So let's get back to this idea in, in, in John 13. How do we cleanse? What, what's he talking about then? What's he trying to teach us, Simon, two things? He's talking about a once-for-all bathing. Things that are unclean and sinful are incompatible with the new life we've been given to by God, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As Peter said, we need to stop doing them and put them away. We need to refrain from them. And it's through the reading of the word of God that we come to that point that we recognize what those things are and that they're evil. 
I'm amazed when someone can tell me they read a passage and don't get anything out of it. Because I believe the Holy Spirit pricks my heart every time I read the scriptures and points out my selfish, sinful attitudes and tells me things I need to stop doing every time I read it. And so the Lord clearly tells us, if I don't wash your feet, I have no part with you. If you're not being cleansed on a regular basis, he has no part with you. You can't serve him. You can't fellowship with him. You can't commune with him. It's serious. And so I think what he's teaching here clearly is that there's two bathings. A once for all. Something Judas never had. But the rest of the disciples had been bathed all over. And because they had the once for all bathing, which is a washing of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, then there was a need on their part to have their feet washed on a regular basis. Feet washed on a regular basis. Let's close. We might even close early. Turn to Hebrews 10, and I think we see the final picture. Hebrews 10 and verse 22. Let's start. Let's start with verse 17 because I think it sort of flows into what we've been talking about. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more forever. And, 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 and it's, it comes from Verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The blood cleanses us once for all. But this man, after he had offered, verse 12, one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. The blood sanctified us and perfected us. Wherefore, the Holy Ghost also is witness to us, for after he had said before, this is a covenant that I will make with them after these days with the Lord, I will put my laws into their heart and in their minds while I write them. And I believe this is talking about the bathing once for all that the Spirit does. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, where the remission of these is, there's no more offering for sin, and there's never a need to repeat the blood offering because it's been done, we've been cleansed, it's a once-for-all offering. I think most of us are aware of that and, and, and understand that. And then it says this, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, we are of a guilt-free conscience, we can come in before God because we know that our sins have been justly dealt with, by a new and living way which has consecrated us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and I've struggled with this verse for years, and I think lately that um, what I've read from David Gooding has cleared this up for me, and David Gooding's quote on this, or what he says about this, is that God, the veil kept us from God's presence. 
And Jesus Christ comes to earth as God and reveals God to us. And he comes and he allows God to be present, as John would say in the first chapter, tabernacled or dwelt with us. That there was no longer a need to go into God because God came out to us in the person of Christ in his flesh. And that veil was done away with. The separation between man and God was done away with because God came and dwelt with man. And then it says, and having a high priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. And what was sprinkled on the priest? The blood. But he doesn't stop there. And our bodies washed with pure water. And that speaks of the once for all bathing, of the washing, of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And then what does it say? Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful who promised, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. And we come back to where we left off this morning, that the whole reason the Lord is teaching his disciples holiness is for this very reason, that we might provoke and consider one another and provoke to love and good works. We cannot have fellowship with each other when we allow sin to reign. And there's absolutely no reason why sin should reign because we've been washed by the blood and our conscience are clear and we've been washed by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And now it's our responsibility to wash on a daily basis by the washing of the word of God so that we might be used by God in provoking one another to love and good works. Let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight and we thank you for the lessons that you were teaching your disciples. And Father, we know that they struggled with those at those that time. And we know from reading their writings later that they got it. And so Father, we would pray that we would get it, that we would understand the great work that you've done on our behalf, that you've cleansed us from a guilty conscience by the blood of your son, that our sins have been justly dealt with by the blood of your son that we can enter with boldness into your presence. And yet, Father, we know you did not only forgive our sins, you've also given us the Holy Spirit. You've made us a partaker of the divine nature, and in that giving of that spirit, Paul tells us that that was a washing of regeneration. And so, Father, we thank you that as the Lord was teaching his disciples, he could say that there was no need for them to be bathed again except the one who had never been bathed the first time. And so we're thankful that there's a once for all bathing. But at the same time, Father, he went on to teach that there's a constant need to wash our hands and feet from the defilement of this world. Oh, Father, we thank you for your wonderful provision we thank you that you did not leave us powerless against sin by giving us the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you cleansed us of the guilt of our conscience before the living God. And then, Father, we would, because of the daily washing, be available 
be in communion, be in fellowship, and be able to serve the living God. Father, keep us from defilement. Help us to make wise choices. Show us, Father, from the word of God, those areas that still need to be cleansed so that we might serve you with pure hearts. Again, Father, we thank you for the time that we could look into your word. We'd ask that you would bless us, that we'd have understanding, that we'd not be hearers only, but also be doers. And we give you thanks in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.